0: Julian Assange is still in the legal fight of his life, and there are geopolitical angles aplenty in this story. Blacklisting journalists it doesn't like. The Zelensky government's censorship can be Kremlin-esque. And with misinformation and propaganda swirling across social media, Kenya gets ready to vote. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. We start with the journalist currently locked in a maximum security prison in London, without having been tried for any crime. Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, is currently in legal purgatory. Last month, the UK government formally approved his extradition to the US, where he is wanted for publishing classified documents that exposed, among other things, American war crimes. The UK's High Court now decides whether to allow Assange to appeal against an extradition that press freedom groups say would put journalists everywhere at risk. The American pursuit of Assange is far more than a question of law. It's about geopolitics. US allies like Sweden, the UK and Australia have all assisted Washington on this. Support for Assange has been growing and Australia, his birthplace, now has a prime minister who, while in opposition, wanted him released. Has Anthony Albanese changed his tune? And if he hasn't, will it make a difference? Our starting point this week is WikiLeaks, the work Assange's news organization did that landed him in jail. It's easy to get buried in the legalities of the case against Julian Assange the jurisdictional questions, the extradition laws, the accusations of illegal hacking and espionage. What can get lost is the journalism Assange and WikiLeaks produced starting in the mid-2000s that news outlets around the world went to town on, including what we learned about American wars in Afghanistan and then Iraq. What
1: they couldn't tolerate was when Julian Assange was sent video footage Come on, which showed an Apache helicopter in Baghdad killing civilians. Ordinary people. That is the principal reason, the exposure of war crimes that caused outrage, especially in the intelligence agencies of the United States.
2: And then in 2010, there was a huge cache of United States diplomatic cables. There were some quite frank assessments of foreign leaders. With WikiLeaks revealing a directive from Clinton for US diplomats at the United Nations to spy
3: on their counterparts.
2: That perhaps were not considered in the best traditions of diplomacy, shall we say.
3: And those cables also, uh, to some extent, helped spark the Arab Spring starting with Tunisia, when the diplomatic cable showed that ruling family was, you know, corrupt and and triggered uh, the the protests that led to that government's downfall. Uh, So Assange and and WikiLeaks have had a, a tremendous impact on the world, especially in those early years.
0: The irregularities and flaws in the legal case The video evidence the US acquired illegally when Assange was at the Ecuadorian embassy in London. A key witness for the prosecution, a hacker who turned out to be a convicted pedophile who later admitted his testimony was made up. The assurances the Americans have made and the British have accepted that Assange will get a fair trial when the US has not even denied reports that its officials discussed assassinating him in 2017. None of that has really changed. What has changed is that Australia has a new prime minister, Anthony Albanese. The question for Assange, who was born in Australia, is which Anthony Albanese are we talking about? The opposition leader who said this during the election campaign about Assange and his most famous source, Chelsea Manning. Enough is enough. The person who was actually leaked The uh, classified information to WikiLeaks is free, but the person who published that information remains in jail. Or Prime Minister Albanese, who, when asked if his government will press the U.S. to drop the charges, now says diplomacy is best conducted in private, discreetly.
3: Can we imagine if Iran or North Korea imprisoned an Australian? Would the Australian prime minister be content with just talking behind the scenes and quietly lobbying, or would he make more of a a public pressure campaign? And we have to remember that the US is an ally. That depends on Australia uh, for some of its strategic goals in the Pacific. Uh, It's an ally that Australia has done favors for, but perhaps uh, Albanese is not willing to spend the political capital he has uh, on helping Assange
1: the reason that no australian government has dared challenge uh, the extradition of uh, assange is that they are now locked in with the united states just like britain on every level on defense and ideology what makes them different from britain is that their main economic deals are with china but they are ideologically and via a big uniting factor, unfortunately, is race. This is largely still a white country, a white dependency, if you like. And for that reason, they will
0: not break with the United States. Compare Australia and its government's public reticence on the Julian Assange case to another American ally. Mexico, whose president says if Assange is extradited to the U.S. where he could die in custody, America may as well dismantle the Statue of Liberty. There's Brazil, where opposition leader and current favourite to return to the president's office, Lula da Silva, calls Assange a champion in the cause of freedom crime. O Assange
4: cometeu. É crime que todos vocês que falaram
0: cometeram. a verdade. The WikiLeaks founder has far more political support in Latin America than in countries to the north. Germany, for example, where they've built statues of Assange and where a Stuttgart NGO awarded him a peace prize in 2020. More than 70 members of Parliament have demanded his release, but the government, led by Chancellor Olaf Scholz, is content to leave the matter to his allies in the US and the UK.
5: So I asked the German Chancellor's office for their position on the Julian Assange case, and they replied with a statement, and I'm gonna quote, the federal government has full confidence in the rule of law of the British judiciary and therefore refrains from making any further statements on the ongoing proceedings.
1: The German government could act, they're too scared to do it, because they're part and parcel of this whole NATO-EU complex, and in Germany there is more support for him, why? because Germans have been taught that things like arresting journalists or extraditing them to a likely death are things that used to happen either under Hitler or under the East German government. We don't behave like that.
5: The US is our most important ally apart from the European Union and the UK. And we are at the moment in a situation where we are in a war with Russia. So we need to be pragmatic, or at least our government thinks it needs to be pragmatic. I think
6: this statue
5: is a great reminder. All the support for the case of Julian Assange and the fight against the extradition is very important and heartening. I don't think it will change the case, which is very sad because we aren't sacrificing our values.
0: That's what we're seeing in America, the UK, Germany, and from so many other governments in Canada, France, Italy, just to name a few. Values sacrificed, alliances preserved, and precedents, dangerous ones for journalism, about to be set.
2: It's very broadly agreed amongst lawyers and researchers, as well as journalists and civil liberties campaigners, that this would set a terrible precedent. What he did is, as many journalists have pointed out, no different to what journalists and publishers do every day. So it is basically criminalising journalism.
3: There is a very real danger that this sets not just a precedent for the US to be able to wield this, this very extreme power of, of being able to pluck a journalist out from any country and, and, and send them to jail in their own uh, borders. But also that other countries now looking at this example will say, well, hold on, if the United States can do this, why can't we? China is a, a rising power. Imagine now if China is able to say, well, we're going to do the same thing because we don't like what some of these American or British or Australian journalists are publishing about what's going on in our country. So it's saying that U.S. officials would do well to to contemplate it.
0: Political propaganda can be clumsy and Russian tactics in Ukraine are well documented. But two can play at that game. And Johanna Hus is here with the details.
6: We have to go back to March 2021, roughly a year before the war started. President Volodymyr Zelensky established the Ukrainian Center for Countering Disinformation to curb what he described as propaganda and destructive information from Moscow. Through these months of war, the center has been compiling a list of individuals that it deems to be promoting narratives consonant with Russian propaganda. That list includes politicians from around the world, from Rampol in the US to Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour in France to Robert Fico in Slovakia. Their alleged crime? public statements that appeared to side with the Kremlin. Beyond politicians, there are academics and journalists, military analysts like Edward Ludwig, an American who suggested that the Donets and Luhansk regions should hold referendums to determine their futures. Political science scholar John Mersheimer's name is there as well for arguing that NATO's expansion provoked Russia. American journalist Glenn Greenwald, who was on the list for quote scaremongering, called it standard McCarthyite idiocy and defended his right to be critical of a proxy war between the world's two largest nuclear powers. Lutwek tweeted that Kiev's enemy list needs quote some serious scrutiny, rejecting his pro-Kremlin label and reiterating the fact that he has personally lobbied for NATO countries to send more weapons to Ukraine. Exactly what Kiev hopes to achieve with this list is unclear. Some of the arguments they've taken issue with, like questioning NATO's expansion, have been made by numerous analysts and reporters, including us here at The Listening Post. By blacklisting people for that sort of thing, they're copying a tactic straight out of Russia's censorship playbook.
0: Thanks, Joe. Kenya is about to go to the polls. With its presidential election on August 9th, Uhuru Kenyatta cannot run again because of term limits, and two familiar figures are vying to succeed him, the deputy president, William Ruto, and Rila Odinga, an opposition figure taking his fifth run at the top job. Social media is where most Kenyans go to keep track of developments. It's a place where politicians are paying influencers and small armies of bloggers to get the word out, to play the fear card, raise the specter of ethnic tensions and political violence if that's what it takes to get votes. Kenyan politicians used to rely on some questionable Western communications firms to run their social media, produce their propaganda, and spread misinformation. Now they have new sources of media expertise available domestically to do that. The Listening Post's Ryan Coles now on Kenyan influencers for hire and the misinformation running rampant in
7: this election campaign. It usually begins with a simple what's up message. A political operative delivers an assignment to a social media influencer for hire. The jobs vary, but the ask is always the same. Make this content go viral. We spoke with a Kenyan influencer who insisted he had to remain anonymous. The person you see here is an actor. During our interview, the influencer revealed some secrets about an industry that, as Kenya gears up for a general election, has grown in size and impact. So tell me about your operation. What's the size of your team? How does the process work?
4: My team is sometimes just 30 people and can grow up to 100. I'm the point of contact with the client, and I let the team know about our assignments through a WhatsApp group chat. We then use Facebook and Twitter to push political messages. How much do your services cost? It depends on the task but it ranges from 50,000 shillings to 1 million shillings. That's like 8,500 US dollars.
7: Can you give me an example of something your team has made go viral? I'm not going to answer that, because then you'd know who my client is. Okay, but in general terms, how would you describe the content you help spread for politicians?
4: Look, my team is ethical. We are very careful with what we push. We mainly share content that
7: promotes the politician's track record, or if they are new, their promises for the people. Have you ever agreed, though, to attack your client's competitor or spread negative information? Yes, it happens. For all the assertions that the work is above board, this influencer does not advertise his services, and secrecy is paramount.
4: It's now become part of the report uh, of being a big haunt your politician to also have a certain amount of influencers or bloggers or people that can quickly whip up a certain sentiment about you online. Uh, It is done in secret because sometimes some of the stuff that these people put out again falls into incitement and a lot of it is fake and manipulated content. And much of the time they also uh, violate the terms of service of many of the platforms in which they engage.
8: Propaganda is a is a budget item when it comes to politics. You have to have budget for propaganda. You have to have budget for amplification. It's usually under communications. But we know what communication means in, in politics. We know what that means. Like that's the name of the game is propaganda.
4: Chances are minimum that Raila Odinga can win 2022
2: general election.
7: Influencers are ubiquitous this election and are utilized by virtually all Kenyan politicians their primary targets are leading candidates William Ruto, the current deputy president, and Raila Odinga, the former prime minister. Much of the misinformation features run-of-the-mill fakery, Photoshop campaign rallies, fake endorsements, or doctored academic qualifications. However, the posts often veer into darker territory, and a lot of them live on TikTok. This is an application that did not exist
4: five years ago when we were having our elections in 2017. But suddenly TikTok has become very popular with the younger demographics. Much of the content that we had reviewed was teetering on the edge of promoting hate speech and incitement to violence. Using othering language, which we know has been used a lot during genocide, things like madoadoa, which is a very laden term in the Kenyan political context. Tuko kutoa madoadoa. The
8: madoadoa just means it's almost like a, like stains or something. And so when you mention that, what you're trying to do is, re, is bring up tribal tensions. What you're trying to do is re-traumatize Kenyans. We were thrown deep into the post-election violence, and those wounds are still very fresh. They will continue to do videos that look like, you know, horror, apocalyptic, you know, end of the days.
7: That recipe for online success may have been imported. Take this video. It paints a devastating future for Kenya if William Ruto wins the election. It's slickly produced, but is a direct ripoff, scene for scene, of a video President Kenyatta's campaign put out in 2017. The target was Raila Odinga, who was campaigning for office back then as well. The video was put together by Harris Media, a Texas-based marketing agency made infamous by its political work around the world. They and other companies like the notorious British consulting firm Cambridge Analytica worked on two of Kenyatta's presidential campaigns. Those companies might not be involved with the candidates in the 2022 elections, but the methods they employed are still in play. Their stench is still pretty much in the room. A lot of the tactics that we
4: saw attributed to Coverage Analytica and the other two companies are still very much being used within our political sphere, especially on social media platforms. I look at something like the Real Raila campaign, which I think we had never really seen before, that was sort of trying to paint this picture of the opposition as this sort of boogeyman that needed to be feared. The use of very emotive campaigning characteristics within um, campaign messaging and the very specific use of platforms to try and disseminate this content into
7: the public consciousness. It's nearly impossible to pinpoint the origins of this content or the number of players involved. And with so few influencers willing to speak on the record, much of this process remains in the shadows. So we took our question straight to the digital strategists of the two leading candidates, William Ruto and Ryle Odinga. Mr. Otani, thanks for speaking with me. Can you clarify, has the Ryle Odinga campaign hired influencers to amplify their message this election?
8: Yeah, majority of the influencers who do things for Odinga are people who are volunteer, do believe in his message.
7: So you're saying you don't hire influencers in secret to attack Mr. Odinga's opponents or spread propaganda about his main rival, William Ruto.
8: To my knowledge, no. The Kenya Kwanzaa campaign focuses a lot on uh, switching videos, switching messaging. Like Raila will say one thing, then they will twist it to mean something else. We don't engage in the kind of propaganda that
2: that other team engages in.
7: I spoke with the Odinga campaign and they say you guys on the Ruto side, what you call the Kenya Kwanzaa campaign, edit videos and hire influencers to spread propaganda. Is that true? We have no time actually in the campaign to do even manipulation.
4: Even me at the top of the campaign, I'm not hired by the campaign.
7: I'm a volunteer
4: to the campaign. So any other thing that would say that the campaign has hired people then would be, would be misinformation by itself.
7: Do you know whether the Odinga campaign hires influencers to spread negative messaging about Ruto? I mean, when you see 40 people sharing exactly the same message, then those are definitely people on a
4: payroll. So if there is money and payment, it's on the other side of the campaign.
7: Accountability is lacking in Kenya. Some steps have been taken by platforms like TikTok and Twitter to delete harmful information or suspend accounts, but it hasn't been nearly enough to stop the problem. The main governmental agency responsible for doing something is called the NCIC. They released a list of banned words on social media, including Madoa Doa, but were widely ignored. They've even brought influencers to court for hate speech. But Kenyans have yet to see a prosecution
8: the government could be really doing things but we don't get to know what they do because there's always an information gap that there are active cases on hate speech in court the people who have actually been arrested on hate speech but these cases are usually not highlighted so the resulting effect is us thinking that the government is not doing anything and i think what we need and and what my ask would be to the government is to make an example out of a case where we we actually see it and we actually see them being persecuted
4: i think the reason we have Poor accountability when it comes to this type of thing is because we have very weak institutions. The NCIC could be one of those entities where we are seeing very clear examples of violation of certain laws, but nothing is exa- essentially happening to the people that break those laws. Yeah, They're not strong, independent institutions that are unshakable to the opinions of there are overlords within the government, and that's a problem.
0: And finally, the Pope has just completed what the Vatican calls a pilgrimage of penance to Canada. Pope Francis started out west with an official and long-overdue apology to Indigenous communities for the horrors and violence inflicted by the Catholic Church, particularly at schools run by priests and nuns. Indigenous children suffered physical and sexual abuse, punishment for speaking their mother tongue. Hundreds of them disappeared, buried in graves only recently discovered. The investigations are ongoing. There will be more news to come. Here are some recommendations on where to go online to find it. APTN National News, part of Aboriginal People's TV, is a website dedicated to Indigenous history and current events. It hosts podcasts and programs from interviews to investigations. Groundwork for Change is a site any Canadian can use to educate themselves about Aboriginal issues through videos, maps, articles, and links to help people connect with First Nations, Metis, and Inuit communities. Quest is an Indigenous online news magazine focused on stories on First Nations communities in Atlantic Canada. Most of their followers use Twitter. They're also active on Instagram and Facebook. On Twitter, we follow Pam Palmatier, an Indigenous Mi'kmaq lawyer, professor, activist, and politician. Tanya Talaga, author, columnist at The Globe and Mail and founder of Makwa Creative, an Indigenous-owned production company. And Cindy Blackstock, executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada. She's all over this story. One that the Canadian mainstream media have paid too little attention to for far too long. See you next time here at The Listening Post.